Amen. Well, again, church, welcome. Uh, as we do just that and gather our morning offerings, uh, I would like to just sort of uh, remind you, give you a recap of where we are in our study of God's Word, because that's what we're going to do right now, is dive right back into the Word of God. And so as uh, our young ones make their way to have their time with God's Word uh, on their own and their teachers, we thank each one of them. Uh, all the children and, of course, uh, those that have given their time to lead them and to teach them. We thank you for them. And so we want to get back into God's Word as we are quickly approaching the end of our study of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we call it The Way of Jesus. That's been the series uh, title for us all along. Because if you remember, as we st- have been studying the Gospel of Mark... Mark has been progressing on a pretty quick pace to get us to where we have been the last few weeks, and that is the last few days and now even the last few hours of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And so we have been looking at what it's like to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And so we've called it the way of Jesus because we are learning how to follow the way. Right? When some, when you say that you're going to follow somebody, you recognize that they are leading you to a place. And if you're going to follow somebody, then it takes trust, doesn't it? It takes trust that uh, you put trust and faith in that person, that you are leading them. And so that's what the Gospel of Mark has been showing us, how to be disciples who are by nature and definition followers. Right? So we are following Jesus while He is on the way. And He is showing us the way to follow him and especially in these last few days and hours he is um, showing his disciples 2,000 years ago and us today as well what it's going to look like after he is gone he has been preparing them for what is happening and so this morning I think our focus needs to be this are we prepared to be reminded of what Jesus had to go through so that we could be sitting here today. Because our passage in the Gospel of Mark is Mark 15, and it's verses 16 to 32. Just those few verses. Mark 15, 16 to 32. And this whole passage is about Jesus being mocked and the actual crucifixion. And it is, uh, of course, the event that changed the world. It changed the course of history. But how has this event changed us? How has it affected us? And even more specifically this morning, how will it continue to affect us? You see, this morning's passage is all about what Jesus endured right before going to the cross and then being placed on the cross of crucifixion. And so it will be difficult to hear at times. And I trust, as it was for me, reading and studying and preparing for this morning, sobering and humbling to be reminded of an event we know about and we've read about it. We know it took place and we recognize and understand the importance of it for us as Christians and followers of Jesus, but can we actually wrap our minds around what occurred in those early hours of that day 
when Jesus was led to the cross. So that is our passage for today. And so I wanted to just prepare us, give us some context. So you know, the last few weeks we've seen Jesus in the garden. We've seen Him praying and asking His disciples to stay alert and stay awake so that they would not be tempted, but yet they failed. We see Jesus warning Peter that he would betray him, and Peter even denying that, saying that he would die before he betrayed him. And then we saw Jesus being betrayed by Peter. As Jesus was being mocked and beaten the first time, Peter was denying even knowing him. And then we see Jesus being mocked in a mock trial. A trial which was ridiculous from the start by the religious leaders trying to find a way to truly make a charge against Him stick. And asking Him as we looked last week, so are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? And He openly admitted it at the same time Peter was denying Him. So where does that bring us to today? Remember we saw that Pilate did not want to have Jesus' blood on his hands. Pilate said three times that he found no charge against this Jesus. But yet in the end, remember how what we saw at the end of our passage last week? Pilate not wanting to disappoint the crowds because he didn't want a mob scene on his hands. He said fine. He gave the crowds what they wanted. He gave them a murderer in Barabbas. And Jesus took his place. And now we come to what happens next. That Jesus was scourged. He was beaten. We see that he is even mocked and led on the way to the cross. So that's where we are, church. We are um, about two passages, two messages away from ending our Gospel of Mark. But here is where we land today at the crucifixion. It begins uh, today's reading with the mocking of Jesus. Jesus was mocked, and we often, we often lay that aside and forget about it when we talk about that whole crucifixion event. Because it, it's, it's so hard-hitting, isn't it, what actually happened to Him. But yet, before that even happened, Jesus was being mocked. That was a significant part of it. He was being made fun of and He was taunted and disrespected and spat upon. All while saying nothing in His own defense. Being led to the cross. Jesus was mocked by the leaders. He was mocked by the Roman soldiers. By those just passing by. He was mocked by even the other criminals. One to His right and one to His left. They put a robe on him. They put a robe on him to mock him as king of the Jews. They even put a mock crown on him, a crown of thorns. And they knelt in mockery, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. They gave him a a scepter or a staff that they used to beat him on the head, handing it to him to make fun of him, to revile him. And to mock our Lord. 
Now it's interesting, church, that the gospel writers, if you've read of the account of the crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't give us any true or real details about what happened to Jesus on the cross. They don't go into detail about what that looked like. You know why that is? Not because it's not important, it's extremely important. But what we, what we often forget 2,000 years later is that the act of crucifixion as a torture for criminals was widely known. Every one of the Gospels' uh, first readers, they would have known full well what happened in graphic detail during the crucifixion. So the Gospel writers didn't need to spell it out because everybody knew the horrors of the crucifixion. But here today, we don't see that on a regular basis, do we? We've never seen it. But yet people in that day, the people that would be reading this, they knew full well. It was unfortunately a common occurrence. It was set aside for the worst of the worst criminals. And here was Jesus up on that cross. And so I'm going to take you through this passage and you'll see what happens. Jesus being mocked, made fun of, and then being led all the way up to Calvary. And so I want to also, when I'm done reading it, I want to give you a description, a little description of what would have been going on with Jesus physically, emotionally, mentally, while he was going through that. But let me read first what the Word of God says about it. So this is Mark's account of it, Mark 15, 16 to 32. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. So that's where they were. And they called together the whole battalion, which means there was a whole lot of people there. All kinds of soldiers. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of that purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Remember at this time he had already been beaten and scourged by the soldiers. So they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests 
with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Do you get a picture of the scene of what's going on? See, the Gospel writers all give a different focus and attention to different aspects of this. But Mark is unique in that if you follow through what I was reading, Mark focuses on the mockery of Jesus. Do you notice that all it says in verse 21, in verse 24, and they crucified Him. That's all it says. And they crucified Him. Just think of everything that went into that crucifixion. Mark says they crucified Him. But Mark wanted to bring attention to the fact that all of these people, the soldiers, the chief priests, the scribes, the people just passing by, even the criminals were mocking Him and reviling Him, making fun of Him and taunting Him, all the while Jesus saying nothing. So I want to give a description of what would have been happening to Jesus while He was on the cross. Because we see in our passage, He had already been scourged and beaten a few times, and He was being led away, and, and the, the, the cross beam of the cross was just too much to bear for Him. And so the soldiers pulled Simon aside and said, you do it for Him. They had the authority and a right to do that. That he couldn't even carry that. And then they bring him to Golgotha, to Calvary. I want to pray for us first, church. Before I, I read this and quote it, give this description, I'd like to pray for us. So if you can just close your eyes and, and bow your heads. Father, I'm simply asking that each one of us here, as we hear just a, a description of what it would have been like for our Lord Jesus, what He would have been experiencing, that we would somehow, because of Your uh, divine intervention, that we would understand a little bit more of what it cost for us to have been given that free gift of salvation, about what it cost our Lord Jesus. Father, You know that none of us here have seen a live crucifixion, that we don't see it on a regular basis. It's not part of our society, and so it seems so removed, Lord. God, would you help us to just, in a way, visualize it, to somehow internalize it, and that we would not let it go. That, Father, it would be hard-hitting for us and would be difficult to even hear, but, Lord, that we would know just a little bit more of what our Lord experienced. Father, have mercy on us. Have mercy. Amen. <clears throat> what Jesus experienced physically during what we call the crucifixion, it actually started back in Gethsemane. We forget about that. You remember what it said happened in the garden? That He sweat blood. Now, medically, that is possible. It's rare. But you know what causes sweat glands to start bleeding? It's extreme duress and stress on all parts of the body. 
We've all been in places where we've been under great stress and physical stress, but to the point where he was sweating blood. That blood was actually coming out and being mixed with his bodily sweat. That's where it started for Jesus in the garden. This rupturing of his sweat glands causing the bleeding would have caused weakness and the beginning of shock. He was beaten during the trial. Remember that? That mock trial. They began to spit on him. They blindfolded him. They were beating him. They were punching him. They were slapping him. He was being thrown around. We watched a video depiction of that. Remember? He was already weak from sweating the blood. Now he was being beaten during the trial. It was the middle of the night, so he had no sleep. He was probably already beginning to show signs of dehydration. We know what it feels like when we get no sleep. Do you ever pull an all-nighter in school? Or maybe you have to work all night or something like that, and you go almost 24 hours without any sleep, just how your body feels? And Jesus was going through that, already then also being beaten and under great stress that he was even sweating blood. And so, having no sleep and probably even dehydrated, it says they then stripped him of his clothing. He had already been scourged to what was left. What they had put on him after. Did you ever get cut and then put something on over it, even a bandage, and have to take it off? I want to go into detail about what that's like. But think about what was happening to him. They tied him to a post when they scourged him and they they whipped him with those leather, leather straps with ending with sharp bones and rocks and metal tearing his skin. And oftentimes the prisoners died during that. He was mocked with a robe and a crown of thorns that they fashioned. They didn't just gently place it on his head. They put it on his head and they beat him with a stick with the crown of thorns on his head. Did you ever work on a thorn bush or in the garden and he gets stuck? With a thorn, he had a crown of them on his head. He would have been bleeding and the blood coming down mixed with his sweat. Then he was forced to carry the crossbeam of the cross, usually weighing about a hundred pounds, made of rough wood. This was not sanded down. This would have been rough wood tearing at his open wounds and skin as he stumbled under its tremendous weight. Did you ever try to carry a hundred pounds on your shoulders? He would have been experiencing severe loss of blood, weak in an excruciating pain, never speaking out, so that Simon even was forced to carry it. Jesus was then walking, stumbling. It's been said that there's about 650 yards that he had to walk because he was crucified outside of the city gates. See, it's about six and a half football fields, having been beaten and already tortured. He didn't even get on to the cross at Calvary yet. In that condition, walking six and a half football fields. They then nailed him to the upright beam with the one that he then had to have tied across his shoulders. They put the nails in his wrists 
See, back then they considered the wrist part of the hand. So remember when he showed Thomas, he said, look at my, look at my hands. It was here in his wrists. They couldn't have put it in the hands because just his, his sheer weight would have ripped right through it and he would have fallen down. So they had to put it through the bone and the nerves and the tendons in his wrists. And also through both of his feet, they would have put both of his feet together and put a large flat spike right through there. So hanging there, the Lord Jesus in horrific pain from the nails, the crown of thorns dripping blood into his face. He would have then experienced terrible cramps all over his body because of the dehydration and the severe pain. He would have then experienced difficulty breathing. Have you heard that before? That just hanging there, his lungs would have been had so much pressure that what happens is, and they devise this purposely this way, that he would have had to have tried to just lift himself up a little bit to catch a breath, but then wouldn't have been able to, to breathe out, so he would have had to let himself down. And this was a cycle all over, over and over again, that when he would try to lift himself up with a little bit of, of pressure he could put with his feet nailed to the cross, the excruciating pain that he would feel just to take a breath. And then what would happen is lungs would fill with fluid, and, but at the same time he'd be dehydrated. These terrible cramps all over his body. There was just this cycle of hanging and then lifting up to breathe. It was described by a doctor this way. Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. See, these are details we don't think of. Remember when he was whipped and scourged? All of those wounds on his back now being freshly reopened as he just tries to take each and every breath. And finally, his heart would have began to be crushed by the weight of everything else inside of him. Enduring severe hydration, his heart beginning to just be crushed actually itself. Jesus endured all of this for about six hours on the cross, but all this began back in the garden. Let's keep that perspective, church. If you want more insight, read Psalm 22. A prophetic psalm that talks even more about what Jesus the suffering servant, as Mark depicts him, was going through for us. Psalm 22. Some reflections about this. After I read through that, you know, a passage I had read before, but um, in preparation for today, I read about that. And then as I, as I read this description, you know, in, in my research, reading exactly what would he have gone through. I went back and re- reread the passage. And then I couldn't get over the fact, first of all, that he was mocked. That he was going through all this, and he was mocked. The only little bit of offering of grace that was offered to him was that water, that wine mixed with myrrh, would have given maybe a little bit of relief from the pain, but Jesus even rejected that. He would have all of his faculties in place to experience the extreme and horrific weight of the sin, our sin, that he was taking upon himself. 
But I couldn't get over the fact that they mocked him. Everybody mocked him. I even think that mocking began when his disciples fled. In his hour of need, they fell asleep, and then they fled. And even Peter, promising he would never deny him, denied him. He was being mocked by his own. Those he loved and loved him so much. Then he was mocked by the religious leaders and the soldiers and those passing by and even the criminals were mocking him. From beginning to end, he was reviled. Ridiculed, laughed at, made fun of, disrespected, and taunted by words and by actions. A mock salute. Yes, you're the king of the Jews. And they even said, why don't you come down and save yourself? You claim that you could save everybody else. How about you save yourself? But church, think about this. As he's being mocked on the cross and all that I just said is going on with him, is he not in the process of doing exactly what it takes to bring salvation, the offer of salvation to the very ones who were mocking him? That's what he was doing. Can we even fathom what that was like? That as they were making fun of him, spitting on him, reviling, casting lots to see who would get his clothes and his sandals, he is up there taking upon himself the sin of those who were mocking him. I want to talk about the crown for a second. It says in our passage that they put on him this robe in mockery and a crown of thorns saying, yeah, you're the king. And They did it not so much for the pain it would inflict, although they knew it would, but it was, it was to make fun of him and say, yeah, yeah, you're the king of the Jews, aren't you? But notice it says in the word that afterwards they removed the robe that they used to make fun of him. They put his own clothes back, but it doesn't say they removed the crown. They didn't remove the crown of thorns. Why? That crown of thorns is highly significant. It was the fulfillment of prophecy. Of course, they didn't know it. That crown of thorns, what does it represent to us? That crown of thorns represents our sin and our guilt and our shame. And that was not removed from Jesus at that time. He had to endure that on the top of his head, meaning his whole body was enduring the pain, the searing pain, for our sin. You know, if you think about it, what was that crown made of? It was made of thorns. We go all the way back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what God said about the curse because of the sin of Adam and Eve and what we call the fall of mankind? What did God say would happen when they would go and have to work the land? He said it would be cursed with thorns. It would be cursed with thorns. And now we see in the fulfillment, God promised a Redeemer who would give Himself up voluntarily for the redemption of sin. And here Jesus has a crown of thorns. The curse of the fall placed all on Jesus. And that's what He was enduring. So I thought about this. What about for me? What about for us this morning? What does this mean? Don't we often do the same thing? Yes, He's not here in front of us on the cross, but don't we make fun of Him? 
Don't we disrespect Jesus when he gives us an opportunity maybe to share our faith and we shy away from it? Or we continue to give in to that sin that, that keeps just grabbing a hold of us? When we know what his word says and we choose not to do it or we don't even open his word? Whatever that looks like, whatever our sin and disobedience looks like, isn't that mocking what Jesus did? All the more reason to remember and reflect on what it cost Jesus and what he endured on our behalf, never giving a response to defend himself. Yet we know in the other Gospels, what did he even say? Forgive them, Father, for they don't even know what they're doing. Could we do that? If we were being mocked, if we were in that position. But yet, don't we do that to our Lord Jesus? There were people just passing by, making fun of Him, even ignoring Him. Do we often do that? We just pass by the Lord in our lives? Not giving Him the time and respect that He is due? The one that we proclaim, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. But yet, sometimes we just pass right by. Or even worse, by our actions And our thoughts and our words, we bring mockery to Him. But then I notice this. It says in verse 30, 31, 32, it's 29, it starts. It was those that said, passed by, derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple. Remember we said, He never said He would destroy it. He said, if you destroyed it, that I would raise it again. So there are even, again, the false accusations just hurling at him. And you said you'd rebuild it in three days. How come you don't just come down from the cross and save yourself? So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, hey, he saved others. He can't even save himself. And then in verse 32, I just kept reading this over and over. Look at what it says. Let the Christ, they said, this King of Israel, Come down now from the cross, and look what comes next. That we may see and believe. Think about that. Here's what they were saying to him in mockery. Why don't you come down so we can see proof of what you say, and then we'll believe. First of all, had Jesus not given enough proof up to this point already? But just think about it, church, what they're actually saying. It's not about lack of evidence it's a lack of belief they're saying we want to see it first and then we'll believe it doesn't jesus and his word teach us just the opposite that we are called to believe and then we will see they had it all wrong they weren't truthfully and honestly saying if you come down we'll believe they were making fun of him all the way Their hearts were hardened, see? And they were saying, yeah, why don't you come down so we can see and believe? We are taught that we are to believe and then we will see. See and believe, it says. See and believe. They wanted to see it with their eyes, but they had no desire in their heart to believe. In fact, there's great irony here in that for Jesus to actually accomplish His goal, He could not come down from the cross. If He was to save others, delivering them from the power of sin, then He could not rescue Himself from the sufferings and death appointed to Him by God. you see what I'm saying? They said, come down and save yourself. He would not be able to do it because if He came down, 
then all was lost and he would have failed at his mission. For Jesus, in order to actually save all of mankind and those who were mocking him, he had to stay on the cross. And that's exactly what he did. See, church, we are saved in Christ by believing. It's not seeing first. It's not even putting all the evidence together. We are called to salvation through simply believing. It's by faith. The issue is not the lack of evidence, but it was unbelief. I want to share this passage with you. John 20, 26 to 31. Be up on the screen. John 20, 26 to 31. And this is that account of Jesus and doubting Thomas, we call him, after the resurrection. But look at what it says, pointing back to uh, our, our focus for this morning. It says, although the doors were locked, remember this is Jesus appearing after the resurrection to his disciples, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, remember it would have been the wrist. And put out your hand, place it in my side, where he was pierced. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, look what Jesus said in response. Have you believed because you have seen me? Well, the answer is yes. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen And have yet believed. That's us. We have not seen Him. But yet we are called to believe. That's what the Word tells us. It says, read the account of Jesus and all that He said about who He is and what He would do. All the promises He made. And simply, do we believe in the promise keeper and His promises? That's how we come to a saving faith in Christ. By believing. We believe in the problem. We believe in the person. We believe in the provision. We believe in the promise. Hebrews 2, 8 through 9. Hebrews 2, 8 through 9, I think sums it up for us. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of His control. The writer of Hebrews is talking about what God did with Christ. He said, putting everything in subjection to Him, meaning Christ, God left nothing outside of His control. He says, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. See that? Of course, God is completely sovereign, is He not? But we know that this world is still controlled by the enemy. So the writer of Hebrews is reminding us, even though God put everything in subjection to Christ, at this present time we don't yet see everything in subjection to Him. This world is not yet perfect. This is not yet His kingdom. But we see Him. So we don't see the whole world under His control worshiping Him. But who do we see? We see Him. I want to make sure we don't miss that. It says we don't see everything in subjection to Him But we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, 
you might taste death, death for everyone. So the first thing about this passage, everything is not yet in subjection to Him. He will return to set up His kingdom when everything will be under His control in that sense. But for right now, we see Him. So in the meantime, our focus is on Jesus, focusing our eyes forever on Him. We are told elsewhere to set our minds on things above where Christ is. Jesus is no longer crowned with thorns, but with glory and honor because of what He endured for us. And then it says it was by the grace of God that He did it for us. The the unimaginable horror and magnitude of the weight of sin. The weight of our sin upon Him caused all of those physical things, but also what was going on with Him mentally and emotionally. Contrast that with the glorious and powerful grace of God. What is the grace of God? As it says there at the end of the passage in Hebrews, the grace of God is God's unmerited favor towards us. Meaning, we do nothing to earn it. We do nothing to deserve it. That's what unmerited favor means. The free gift of salvation in Christ is by grace through faith. Can we just make sure? We want to end with a ray of hope, don't we? Because it's been tough to picture what Jesus went through and all that was physically going on. But we know it says in Hebrews, it says it was by the grace of God that He endured that. How can we endure our struggles today as we are called to deny ourselves, carry our own cross, and follow Him? By the grace of God. What a great phrase for us as Christians to know and to use often. By the grace of God. How are you doing? I'm doing well by the grace of God. See, we don't fully understand all that happened at the crucifixion today. We don't see it like they did. We don't have Jesus walking among us to even hear His voice, but we have His Word, don't we? And we have His testimony, the Word of truth. And that Word of truth calls us to simply believe by the grace of God. It says, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed, that by believing you may have life in His name, We are presented, church, with the gospel of grace. Grace that is simple. Grace that is free. For Christ, it costs everything. For us, it is given as a free gift. Will you believe? That's the call of the Bible. Will you believe? Will you believe... That there is a problem, and that problem is called sin. And it separates you from God. And it's not just the sins we commit. It's that original sin we inherited from Adam and Eve. Do you believe that that is the problem, and that you're in need of a Savior to be rescued from that separation? Do you then believe in the person that God set aside to rescue us in all that He said He would do and who He is, Jesus, the Son of God? Do you believe in His provision and His provision alone? Do you then believe in the promise? The promise that it is a free gift, that we can't earn it or work towards it. We don't even deserve it. 
and the promise that he gives it to us freely to all who believe. Then there is that promise that one day he's returning. He's returning to set up that kingdom while everything will be in subjection to him. Until that day, we are called to believe and then to follow. Will you do that today? Will you believe and then commit to follow him? He desires followers that will follow him not halfway, not three quarters, all the way to the cross. That we live a life of sacrifice and of giving and of surrender and of yielding and of worship, just like he modeled for us all the way from Gethsemane to Golgotha. Let's end our time just one more time worshiping him. When you do, just remembering what the word of God said to us this morning. That he was mocked all the way, beaten, and put on a cross for more than six hours, endured all of that, but he did it because he loves us. That's where the grace of God starts, from God's great love for us, for me, and for you.